0: my husband stood up and said, I'm, I'm going to tell our story. He said, I always thought the first time I talked about Ilana publicly would be at her funeral. And it was, I mean, really, you could hear a pin drop. It was in a very, very eye-opening time for us. Um, I had somebody come up to me who I've known for 10 years and said, I had no idea about your daughter. And by the way, my son is also struggling with addiction. And we've known each other for 10 years. We never spoke about it. So It's out there. And I think that people were just ashamed. And we still hear that. We have a support group now. We still hear that in our support group that I have no one to talk to. I have no one to turn to. I can't tell my story to anybody.
1: I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Last week, I released an episode about problematic behaviors in modern Orthodox high schools with a particular focus on binge drinking. This week, we're speaking with Leanne Foreman, who founded the CCSA organization, Communities Confronting Substance Use and Addiction, along with her husband. We're going to forthrightly discuss drug use in the Orthodox community and also hear the very personal story of their daughter Ilana's misuse of alcohol and drugs. We'll get to the interview in a moment. First, please subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please rate and review us on iTunes to help other people discover this podcast. We're growing every month, and that's thanks to you, our listeners, who help us get the word out. So please continue to share wherever and however you can. Become a Jewish Coffeehouse team member on Patreon. Patreon subscribers get bonus episodes, merch, and more, and in particular, now we'll be having all sorts of bonus material in preparation for the upcoming holiday of Pesach. Of course, by joining Patreon, you help to promote the Orthodox Conundrum, so please do so today. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, podcasting today has become one of the most effective and fun ways of promoting your business, your cause, yourself. And JCH Podcast Production can help you make it happen. We work with our partners to create distinctive, successful podcasts that are distinguished by their high-quality content and exceptional sound. JCH partners with companies, organizations, and individuals who see podcasting as a critical vehicle to get their message to a wider audience. They recognize that the surest way to attract the right audience is for their podcast to stand out for its inventiveness and premium quality. We're committed to building a team to help you create the most entertaining and most effective podcast possible, because when you succeed, we succeed. JCH Podcast Production offers individualized packages that empower you to build your perfect podcast in the way that best promotes you and your message while playing to your strengths. We'll support you from the initial idea, through the setup process, through promotion and release, through your first milestones and beyond. And as data comes in, we'll help you tweak it to make it even better. Go to jchpodcasts.com to find out more and to sign up for a free consultation. Let's work together to make a phenomenal and successful podcast. Leanne Foreman, a 29-plus-year Teaneck resident and a corporate and employment lawyer by training, is the executive director of Communities Confronting Substance Use and Addiction, CCSA, the organization she and her husband Etiel founded in 2018. Through their own family struggles, they founded CCSA to create greater community awareness and education about substance misuse and addiction in the Jewish community. CCSA's mission is to eliminate the stigma around addiction in Jewish communities through awareness events, greater support and resources for families, and facilitating evidence based educational programming in schools for students and parents. Visit www.jewishccsa.org for more information. Leanne Foreman, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: You and your husband started an organization called CCSA Communities Confronting Substance Use and Addiction. And the reason is because of a very personal experience, as I understand it. So to open up, could you tell us your personal experience?
0: Sure. Um, So really, this goes back. We have five children. Our second oldest, Ilana, is now 27 years old. Um, When she was in eighth grade going into high school, she was very, very nervous about high school. Um, My husband and I went out one summer evening before, you know, Before the summer ended and school started, we went out for dinner. We came back and we actually found her drunk. Um, There isn't that much alcohol in our house. We had a bottle of scotch that my husband had gotten as a gift at work. I had some vodka that I cooked with, some wine for, you know, Friday night kiddish. And we were really shocked. She had basically taken whatever she could find, mixed it together and drank it. Um, as she later described in her journey with addiction, and that is the reason why we started this organization, just to answer the question in a roundabout way, um, she said in that moment, she was so anxious and so nervous and everything that she had ever seen in movies and TV, if you drink, you calm down. And she took that drink and it did, as advertised, it calmed her down. And she kind of had this aha moment where she thought to herself, this really answers my problems. This this took care of my feelings of nervousness and anxiety. Um, We being hopefully responsible parents said that's a very normal feeling to be anxious about high school, not such a great healthy coping mechanism and asked her to see a therapist to work on some healthy coping skills. Her journey continued through high school. What I think most people would term normal experimentation curiosity She periodically drank, she periodically um, tried weed, I think starting in 10th grade was her first time that she tried marijuana. And again, not a regular thing, just kind of sporadic. Um, What she didn't realize is that it was already hijacking her brain. It was already becoming something that she was emotionally dependent upon to cope. When she was nervous, when she was anxious, you know, it kind of just soothed her. And by the time she got to college, she had the access and ability to try harder substances, which she did. Um, And what started out as kind of an emotional dependence became a physical dependence. By her sophomore year of college, she was in Queens College, Macaulay Honors Program. And this is a kid who, by the way, poster child in high school. I mean, captain of her soccer team, founder of her chess team, really academically, socially, very successful. Well,
1: Macaulay honors program is very hard to get into, so clearly.
0: Clearly, she did well to get in there, and she was very, very much functioning. The, the substances were not an issue um, in high school. They really became an issue in college. She describes it as having to take something every day in order to feel baseline, in order to function. At some point, it just shifted over into this physical addiction, physical dependence. It wasn't about getting high. It wasn't about feeling good. It wasn't even about coping with anxiety or negative feelings. It was truly a dependence and it took over. And she said it was really a battle between her heart and her brain. Her heart wanted to stop in her heart. She just knew she was doing something that was very destructive and and bad for her. And her brain just was so dependent on these substances at that point. Um, it all came to a head uh, at a birthday dinner. We met her in the city, and she said, Ava, I'm having trouble with drugs. I'm having trouble with, with substances that I'm that I'm on." Um, we were shocked. You know, we had no indication that this was the case. She seemed to be doing well. At that point, she had stopped going to classes. She had really stopped functioning. Um, it probably would have come out later when, you know, we saw her report card or whatever that she was, you know, failing out of her classes. But until then, straight A student or 4.0 GPA, whatever, however they count it. We said right away, okay, we need to get you help. She kind of backtracked at that point and said, I don't want help. I can handle this. I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry I said something to you we looked for resources within the Jewish community and found nothing. And while there was some discussion around other mental health topics like depression, anxiety, um, eating disorders, there was nobody really speaking about substance use or addiction.
1: And so that was the genesis. That's how you decided to start the organization.
0: So that was really um, shocking to us. We felt very isolated. We felt very alone. We really felt like we were you know, kind of battling this on our own. In the meantime, we finally got her an appointment with a counseling center that specializes in placement for treatment. We got her in on a Friday. She went to see them and called us and said, they're looking into places for me to go for rehab and went back to campus. We had made a very painful decision. This is um, in December of her sophomore year of college. Uh, Actually, it was her junior year. we had made a very painful decision not to give her money anymore for tuition or for rent. And we were very, very nervous about what that meant. Because Was that before
1: or after you found out about her problem?
0: It was right after she told us about it. And we said to her, we can't really give you rent money anymore because we're afraid it's going towards drugs. We can't give you tuition money because you're not going to classes anyway. And we were really trying to force her hand. But um, it was very scary for us because she easily could have chosen to go the opposite way and, you know, ended up on the streets or worse. Then can I ask you how, um,
1: how long a like, gap was it between that birthday dinner and when she agreed to get help? A month. Uh-huh, okay.
0: A month. It really was um, not that long, but um, it, it felt like a lifetime. Mm-hmm. So by December, we, 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 her birthday is in November. By December, we had gotten her into this um, clinical practice And she called us up the next Saturday night, Motsi Shabbat, and she said, I'm on a plane, I'm on the tarmac, and I'm heading to Florida. And that was the beginning of her journey to recovery.
1: What was in Florida?
0: A rehab center. Okay. So she flew down to Florida. She went into rehab. It was not a one and done. A lot of people, unfortunately, think, you know, my kid's going to go in, get treatment, get better. Problem solved. I don't even want to say kid, because we have many people in our circle that deal with spouses, siblings, parents, um, but their loved one, you know, is going to go to rehab and magically be better a few weeks later. And it's, it's um, it's a journey. She moved about quite a bit over the next year or so um, in and out of rehabs. She had a couple of relapses. She was living in sober living for a while when she was in a good place in her recovery about a year later was when we, when we thought about this organization and starting this organization
1: I see. How is she doing now?
0: Thank God. She's four years in recovery. Um, She's living in Philadelphia. She and my husband actually just ran the Philly half marathon yesterday together. She's getting a master's degree at UPenn in liberal studies. She's a great server. She loves waitressing. um, And she's doing research for one of the professors at UPenn.
1: That's great. Fortunately, this story seems to have a very positive ending. A lot of people don't have that same positive ending, which gets us into your organization. Before I ask some more specifics, and you raised a lot of important issues, both about how there are no resources in the Jewish community even the fact that you were shocked about it. And i like to talk about how parents might not be shocked, how they can see those signs before it's too late. Before we get there, I want to ask you about the organization's name. CCSA is Communities Confronting Substance Use and Addiction. And you pointed out to me before we went on the air that it's not abuse, it's substance use. You used to call it substance abuse. Why did you change it from substance abuse to use?
0: So our understanding, and really Ilana is one of the people that enlighten us as somebody who's in recovery, our understanding in the vernacular of the addiction world, abuse has a really negative connotation. Um, Abuse sounds like abuser. It sounds like something that you choose to do. You choose to abuse drugs. Our journey was something that opened our eyes to the fact that this is a disease, that it's not something someone chooses. Nobody chooses to become an addict. it's not a moral failing, it's not a character flaw. And so we really felt, we actually did a whole social media campaign around the legal change of our name. We were legally Communities Confronting Substance Abuse and now we're Communities Confronting Substance Use and Addiction. So we kept our same acronym CCSA um, and our logo, everything the same, but we did a whole awareness campaign around what words are appropriate and what words are not appropriate in the addiction world.
1: It's sort of a leading question, but is substance use without abuse still a problem? Meaning some people might argue, well, if someone tries marijuana once, is that really a problem that needs to be addressed? I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I'm wondering what you would answer that person.
0: So, no, I mean, I think when we talk about substance use, we're talking about the misuse of substances um, or the Disuse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, we we talk about addiction. Not all people are struggling with addiction, but they might might be misusing substances and it might be a problem that could lead to addiction. Um, again, it's a it's a journey. it's a it's not something that happens overnight. Um, with Ilana, you know, in her story, and we tell her story a lot to our different audiences that we work with. Um, we talk about it being something that happened over time that hijacked her brain over time. It was not something that happened overnight. And again, nobody really wakes up one morning and says, yeah, I'd I'd like to be an addict. Like It's something that for some people who are biologically wired that way and susceptible to it, it's a disease that develops over time.
1: When you call it a disease, and I appreciate you're speaking so forthrightly about what happened in your own family with Ilana, when talking about it as a disease, as opposed to uh, perhaps a moral failing, do you believe, therefore, that criminalization and the Attitude of society that this is a criminal problem is not really the right attitude?
0: That is a a tricky question. Um, I think that decriminalization is a good idea in the sense that if you can really put in the resources necessary to get people help, there's a lot of drug courts. I know up in Buffalo, I believe, and I know around here in Bergen County and in Teaneck, um, the prosecutor's office has an operation where they See people doing drug deals and instead of arresting them and putting them into jail, they give them the option to get treatment. I think that kind of compassionate response, recognizing that it's a mental health issue, if someone's willing to get help and if the alternative is jail and criminal penalties, so be it. Um, you know, sometimes you do have to use the rod (laughs) to get Mm -hmm. somebody to act. But I think that understanding what what causes it has created greater compassion and understanding. I also think the destigmatization of it, understanding, and this is something that we work on, really our mission is about shattering the stigma around addiction so that people can ask for help, they can come forward.
1: That leads right into the question about the resources in the Jewish community. And frankly, I really would like to speak to you primarily about drug use, although we can also speak about alcohol abuse. Last week, I released an episode talking about alcohol abuse, binge drinking among high school students in the modern Orthodox world. I'd rather emphasize the issue of drugs, having done that last week. Obviously, they intersect. When you talk about no resources in the Jewish community and stigma, is the reason that there's no resources, or before you came along, there weren't any resources that you found, is it because of a stigma? Is it because people are putting their head in the sand, or is it because this really isn't such a big issue in the Jewish community. It isn't such a big problem in the Jewish community. What's your feeling?
0: Um, so first of all, I would say that alcohol actually technically is a drug. And when we do our educational programming, we put we do put them together. Alcohol and other substances are all considered drugs because they alter your state of mind and, and affect your body. Um, I think it's a combination of two of the things you said. I think that there's a perception that it's not a problem. I think that, for those people who it is a problem for, there is tremendous, tremendous amount of stigma associated with it. Um, I just think that in general, when we talk about mental health issues, we're an insular faith-based community. I don't think we're the only insular faith-based community for which this is an issue. I would argue that it's probably true of other religions and other faith-based communities, but there is the sense of high expectations And if somebody doesn't meet those expectations, do we really want to admit that they're not meeting those expectations? So if my daughter took eight years to finish college, which she did, a lot of the reason why we came out with our story was because at one point somebody asked how she's doing. She was down in Florida at that time. She was in sober living. And I made up some fudge excuse of, you know, she's finding herself and she's, you know, whatever I said, it was, and I, I was literally, we were walking home from Shul one Shabbos and I turned to my husband. I said, wow, I wish I didn't have to say those things. Like, why do we have to like make up a reason why she's not in college right now and why she didn't finish college yet. And my then 20 year old son turned to me and said, oh, I just tell people she's in rehab. (laughs) And I said, really? (laughs) And he's, you know, at Lander, whatever he is, right. you know. Um, and I said, I said, but Gabi, she's, she's not in rehab. She's actually in sober living. And he goes, Oh, okay. Well then I'll just tell people she was in rehab. <laughs> and his refreshing open attitude was a lesson. It's something that I internalized and said, wow, we should be able to do that. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we did, we told our story. So in 2018, we organized a community event here in Teaneck. We had an expert in addiction speak. We had somebody in recovery speak. We had a rabbi speak, Rabbi Larry Rothwax from the community. And my husband spoke and told our story for the first time publicly. And leading up to that, we had told our story to the Jewish link, to the Jewish standard. We were interviewed by the Bergen record, which is the local secular paper. Every single one of those put our story on the front cover. Um, it really was, I, I I kept on saying, instead of like ripping off a bandaid, it was like ripping off a body cast. It was all of a sudden we were out there and the amazing experience that we had in telling our story was that in the week leading up to this event, so many people came up to us and said, me too, me too, me too. Hmm. We, we have a dog way pre COVID dog. Um, we have a dog. We were walking the dog on um, one Shabbos afternoon, and somebody came running after us and said, you know, my brother struggles with addiction. We had somebody else tell us their brother died of an overdose. Um, we had someone else tell us their wife was addicted to painkillers. Um, somebody else who told us, you know, again, over wherever I went, the grocery store, my daughter's soccer game, you know, amazing savings parking lot. Wherever I went, people approached us and started saying, me too. And we knew we had struck a chord. We knew that statistically, it could not be that su- suddenly the Jewish community is immune from this. Like, it doesn't happen in the Jewish community. And that really brought it to the forefront for us. The night of the event, we set up the room. It was, I think it was, we had this at TABC, the local boys high school here. Um, I think it's a room that has a capacity of for 500 people. We set up whatever the chairs, however many chairs there were. I think there were 400 chairs set up. Figuring 50, 100 people would show up to this event. We had 700 people at the event itself. Another 300 people were watching live on stream. So in one night, a thousand people. And I was sitting in the front of the room. I did not turn around. I did not want to see who or what was behind me. And it was silent. It was silent. And it went on and the room was hot. And I've never ever experienced that where people were just silent. And my husband stood up. And um, I'm probably going to get emotional saying this because I get emotional every time I say it. My husband stood up and said, I'm going to tell our story. He said, I always thought the first time I talked about Ilana publicly would be at her funeral. And it was, I mean, really, you could hear a pin drop. It was a very, very eye-opening time for us. Um, I had somebody come up to me who I've known for 10 years and said, I had no idea about your daughter. And by the way, my son is also struggling with addiction. And we've known each other for 10 years. We never spoke about it. So it's out there. And I think that people were just ashamed. And we still hear that. We have a support group now. We still hear that in our support group that I have no one to talk to. I have no one to turn to. I can't tell my story to anybody.
1: It's pretty amazing that you had the strength to talk about it publicly, given the community-wide stigma in talking about family members who have issues with substance use. But I'm really impressed with your daughter, Ilana, and I wonder what her reaction was to going public about the things that she was dealing with, because as much as it's difficult for the family, I can't imagine how it was for her to have a thousand people hearing her very personal and painful story.
0: So we we made sure with all of our kids before we did this, um, Ilana, first and foremost, it's her story to tell. It's not our story. We asked her, are you okay with this? She said, I am on one condition. You give my, my name and my phone number in case anybody's going through something similar and they want to talk to me and I can help them. Wow. Um, my younger son, the one who was the impetus to this, you know, he was coming of dating age. Um, he's dating in certain circles where this might not be so acceptable. And I said to him, you know, are you okay with it? And he said, if anybody doesn't want to marry me because, you know, I have a sister who's struggling with addiction, then I don't want them anyway. He is happily married, and in fact, I think on his second, third, fourth date, whatever it was, we had actually had a, a story published in Mishpacha magazine, and he went to pick up the girl who he's now married to, and the family had that article and had read it over Shabbos. So, um, you know, again, we're an open book at this point. Like, you look our names up, and that's what comes up. My two younger daughters were at going to the same high school my daughter had gone to, Maya Note here in Tinek. And we said, you know, for some people, teachers who knew Ilana or people who don't know you, you're going to be the sister of the addict. Are you okay with that? And they said, yes. And really, the most rewarding thing was my my now 21 year old daughter was 17 at the time. And um, the night of the event, she came up to us at the end. And here we were, like I said, people coming out of the woodwork, me too, me too, you know, touching all these people, people before the event, after the event. And she came up at the end of the event and she was in tears and she said, now I get it. Now I understand what we went through. And it it is a family disease. It affects every single person in the family. But to have reached her and had her understand, even though she lived it, um, I think that was probably one of the most rewarding outcomes of that event.
1: Hmm. You talk about all the people who come forward and said, me too. I'm also part of this. Do you have any data that talks about how prevalent this is in sectors of the orthodox community?
0: So we're not, um, we do collect data. We don't collect data in a very formal way. We have three areas that we work in primarily. That night that we had this event, it was before we became a 501C3, we put out feedback cards and and thank God we had the foresight to do that because we really did get some very valuable feedback. The three things that the audience wanted to see more of was more community events like the one we had, more awareness events. We have three or four a year. Um, We do all sorts of topics around addiction, other ancillary topics, um, either behavioral addictions or other taboo topics in the Jewish world that we bring in experts, people who are suffering firsthand from those issues, and other perspectives to talk about you know what's going on in the Jewish community before Purim, we had one on alcohol and alcoholism. We had two people in recovery, one younger woman, one um, older gentleman to speak about their own personal experience as Orthodox Jews and drinking in the Jewish community, how that impacts them. We have, as I mentioned, this support group. So that started right away. They people said we want support for family members. And we said, Okay, and we started a support group. It was live and in person before COVID. It's now virtual on zoom. We have it every other Wednesday evening. And that is attended by so many people from so many different communities. And like I said before, we have spouses on for their loved one, we have siblings, we have children on for their parents, parents on for their children. And that's been an incredible eye-opening experience because people are coming on from all different walks of life and you know, all different Jewish communities pretty much around the United States. Um, and the third thing, and, and one thing we're doing really strongly is we're going into schools with prevention programming. We have a prevention program that we bring into sixth through 12th grade. It is taught by somebody who is Jewish with firsthand experience with addiction. We also have a parent program and a faculty program. So we're trying to approach this from all angles, you know, from, from children with prevention programming to talking to their parents, talking to the schools, having these community events and supporting the families who are struggling with this really to, again, break that stigma, create dialogue, create conversation about this topic and make people aware that this is a communal issue and it needs a community based support, community based dialogue and community based solution.
1: So there's a lot there I want to ask you about. first. Okay. Speaking about that last point about a community based solution, When we use the term community when it comes to orthodoxy, for better or for worse, that is a very broad term. There are many different sub-communities within the orthodox world, and of course, even within any given community, there are many different sectors there, elementary school kids, high school kids, college kids, adults, and so on and so forth. So have you found in your experience that drug use, substance use is more prevalent in, first of all, a particular segment of the orthodox community, whether we're talking about yeshivish, modern orthodox, Haredi... Hasidish or anything else, and second of all, among which age groups is the problem most acute?
0: So, um, I think that it's hard to say where there it's more prevalent because I think that there are areas that's more prevalent but not talked about, and I think there are also segments where certain substances are more prevalent than others. Um, So, in more yeshivish settings, you know, where alcohol might be encouraged. Um, and I say this really from the people in recovery who have talked about their journey in addiction, that when they were young, they were you know, told, let's have a lechayim," let's have a lechayim," and it was pushed on them really at young ages. And that was really their first foray into substance use. But I think exposure is everywhere. And I think it just takes different forms, whether it's, you know, the four cups of wine, Pesach coming up, like that is seen as such a tradition and and necessity in all walks of orthodoxy. I don't think it really, I don't think you can pinpoint one group or another. I think that's something that comes up, you know, every kid in school making a Haggadah puts the four cups of wine. We see, you know, our children see us drinking. What is used in different circles? You know, it may vary community to community. I've never been able to prove this out because I, I'm not gonna be the one to go into a shul and participate, but I've been told that instead of having scotch at you know Shabbos kiddushes now, there are edibles, marijuana edibles. And that's something that is engaged in by certain segments of the community might be younger, but with the legalization of marijuana, we're seeing a shift and a, and a turn when it comes to that, that marijuana is so accessible and so available. Um, I can tell you from the data that we've gathered We, like I said, go into schools, middle and high schools, we ask the kids to write down on an index card anonymous questions, and we read them and we collect them afterwards. Um, A lot of times in our presentation, we'll talk about the questions because they're giving us their most pressing concerns and their thoughts. Really, for us, the questions fall into three categories. One is misinformation, that they ask a question, they know something, but they don't really know a lot. The second is curiosity. They want to understand what something is about, but more than that, they, kind of, they want to try it. Like they're curious about trying it. How does it feel? What does it look like? Um, and the third is that they're struggling, either themselves or a friend or someone they care about, could be an adult in their life. And the kinds of questions we get really demonstrate to us that these kids, A, have a lot of knowledge and exposure and B, are doing substances much younger and much more often than we think.
1: You mentioned marijuana just now and the fact that some kiddishes have edibles and have that perhaps instead of a bottle of scotch, or maybe in addition to a bottle of scotch. I'm not sure. I believe there are 18 states that have legalized adult recreational marijuana use. And I am curious about marijuana as a gateway, uh, and in general, some of the possible gateways towards more serious drug use. So my first question is, Do you find the legalization of marijuana, which is picking up steam, heading across this country? I believe that there are only two states right now, Idaho and Nebraska, where it's fully illegal, even for medical use. Do you find that to be a problem? And second of all, can you just describe in general some of the behaviors that are gateways to serious drug use? Marijuana is an example. Alcohol is an example. Although in and of themselves, they also can be serious drug use, too. I mean, what leads, though, to some of the serious problems that we see with drug use?
0: Um, I do happen to have some data on this. So in 2020, according to the MTF, which is the monitoring the future survey that's used to measure eighth, 10th and 12th graders across the country, it's been around for many, many years. 11% of eighth graders reported using marijuana in the past year. Um, These numbers only go up in 10th and 12th graders. And, you know, we're looking at 2021 data, which was kind of cut off by COVID, but with the legalization, and, and I'm talking specifically New York, New Jersey, you know, with the recent legalization, um, the perception of harm has gone down. Kids think it's no big deal. It's legal. It's just like alcohol. It's no big deal. It's much, much more accessible. There are six vape shops that have opened up in Teaneck alone, and they're positioning themselves to become legal dispensaries once, it's, once you can legally dispense marijuana. The accessibility and availability have creator, created greater use of it. I also know from our presenters, and many of them themselves are in recovery, Ilana is just one of many young adults that we work with. They all started out with either marijuana or alcohol or both. So even though marijuana is not considered a traditional gateway drug, the description that most people struggling with addiction will tell you is you get high, you build up a tolerance, and then you're looking for more. And there's only so much marijuana can do. So while it may not be addictive in the sense of nicotine or heroin, it leads to harder substance use. If you're somebody who is susceptible to addiction, nobody really starts off shooting up heroin. Like that's not where the journey begins. And statistically, most people who struggle with addiction started using somewhere around the the age of 12, 13. So before high school whether it was alcohol as their first you know, drug or whether it was marijuana as their first drug or a combination of both. Um, and, and the national averages bear that out. They, we talk about substance misuse really starts around 12, 13 years old on the average, which means that they have to have been using even younger than that to get to the point of misuse. So we're seeing that our kids are using substances at alarmingly young ages And marijuana has just become one of those, really because of this perception that it's, you know, it's legal, it's harmless, it's not a big deal, you know. And it's, again, that all those other factors that go into it, whether it's curiosity, whether it's self-medicating, a lot of kids describe self-medicating. I had one kid say to me, I get very nervous and anxious in social situations. So I smoke weed before I go to any kind of social situation, is that so terrible?
1: I see. you've mentioned curiosity. You've mentioned anxiety. Are there other sorts of behaviors that are not directly related to substance abuse per se that can lead to substance use?
0: Um, so, any mental health condition where somebody's anxious or depressed um, or struggling with something else, there's a lot of comorbidities with addiction. So, if there's another mental health issue, um, very often you can see you know two co-occurring conditions happen at a time. Again, I think there is uh, peer pressure is a big thing wanting to fit in. I'm actually, I have cards here. If you're interested, I can actually read you verbatim what kids are saying. now. Yes, I'd very
1: much like to hear that.
0: Okay. So in, in terms of peer pressure and just perception, modeling, you know, what happens in our community, what happens in our homes, parents. I think that, you know, we talk about in our parent program, if you're going to bring out your $200 bottle of scotch and say, Ooh, ah, look at this you're glorifying it. You're making it. It doesn't mean you shouldn't drink. I'm not, I'm not saying that nobody should drink, but Mm -hmm. if you're going to glorify it, your kids see that and hear that and think, oh, this is something to covet. This is something that I really want. Or if you have a bottle of wine and you put it on the table Friday night and the plan is to finish it no matter what, as opposed to pouring yourself a glass and putting it aside. And that's it. You know, I have my glass of wine with Friday night dinner. Um, and we explained to, to, our kids that we're educating, we say there's a very big difference between an adult brain and a teenage brain or a youth brain in terms of development and how a substance affects it. But in terms of questions, it's just, to, just to lead in. Mm-hmm. In my family, drinking is normalized. Is it okay to get intoxicated sometimes, not often, when my family is present? Everyone said that weed is not addictive, whether true or not is up for debate. I have a relative close in age with me, and this is a high schooler, so I have a relative close in age with me that is always high Used to smoke once a week and now does it two to three times a day. I've chosen not to say anything. Am I making the wrong choice? Realistically, do you think we can actually never touch a substance when in our community it's totally normal to drink, even our parents drink? And I love that ending because it's normal to drink for teens, even our parents drink. Something I wanted to share. I know people who have been affected by addiction, even some who have overdosed. Sometimes I feel like I could have done more, but for a certain situation, I was in middle school, so I thought that my friend would be mad at me and get in trouble for telling on her. I never drink or anything, but most of my friends are probably going away this summer. I don't want to, but I feel in the moment I might feel like there was no reason not to and I feel left out. Why can't I just try it once? I want to know so I know how it feels. The unknown is annoying. It kind of feels like I'm missing out. FOMO. My friends are doing it. I want to try it too. I just don't want to get in trouble.
1: Wow. That's very Very telling.
0: Very telling.
1: I'd like to ask you about what you said earlier when you said that you were shocked when you realized or learned that your daughter was using drugs. Can you maybe give some information about what are some of the warning signs that someone may be using drugs or substances?
0: So we're a little bit of a scary story in that way um, because there really weren't any warning signs. She really was functioning. She used to go over to a friend's house on Shabbos afternoon happened to be the older sibling who was the one supplying the marijuana and the alcohol. And again, occasionally. Um, So it's not like she was getting high every day or drunk every day. Um, And, you know, I always talk about the fact that if you use substances, it doesn't make you a bad person, but you are engaged in something dangerous. So I'm going to say this with that in mind, Mm -hmm. that this was a quote unquote good family. Like I, we knew the family, we knew who she was going over to, you know, we knew her friend um, happens. This is not somebody
1: you warned to stay away from.
0: So I really tend to stay away from that dialogue completely. And kids ask us that. And parents ask us that like, you know, kids will say, I don't want to tell my parents that my friend is, is using drugs because they're going to tell me to stay away from them. Parents should know that by the way. And parents, we always ask us like, well, if, if I find out that my son's friend is using substances, shouldn't I tell them to stay away? That's a bad influence. And I keep on Trying to teach, and again, in this destigmatization, it's not bad and good. It's not a moral failing, it's not a character flaw. It is something that somebody might be struggling with. And also telling your kids to stay away from somebody is probably an invitation for them to even seek them out more. so true. And they're not going to trust you. They're not going to want to talk to you openly about the situation. Let's say, God forbid, this kid really needs help, and your child is the only one that recognizes that. You want it, what we're about is giving kids the language to ask for help, to come forward. And we talk about finding a trusted adult, ideally your parents, and being able to talk openly. And we talk to parents about communication skills and how to broach this very difficult topic with their children so that there is dialogue on both sides, that they can talk to each other. Going back to this situation with my daughter, you know, she talks about the fact that she wishes somebody had said something in high school about what she was doing because it might've saved her years of misery, but she didn't open up about it and talk about it because she didn't want to be labeled a bad kid. She didn't want parents to tell their kids, don't hang around with Ilana. So, you know, that's where we really learned our lesson about stigma. She, you know, again, well, can was, I ask you
1: about that? Is there something yeah. you in retrospect that you should have said to her at the time, given that there were no outward signs that she was using drugs?
0: Um, so you know, we again, she was she was struggling with anxiety and depression. She was seeing a therapist regularly um the therapist had no indication that she was using substances um what i think really became scary was she had been prescribed Adderall um, for ADHD towards the end of high school beginning of college and when she went off to college she was abusing it um and i use the word abuse sorry but she was misusing it um and she the psychiatrist should have caught on and was just re-prescribing re-prescribing And at that point, that was really where her journey in addiction began was with this misuse of Adderall. Um, Whenever we saw her and we saw her pretty frequently in college, she's not that far away. She always seemed fine, you know, together. and, And, you know, could she have been high? Could she have been on something? Maybe. But it didn't really show up in our interactions with her. Um, And certainly certainly during high school, it didn't impact her or interfere with her life. Addiction is really when it starts to interfere with your life and really becomes something that's unmanageable and uncontrollable. What I would say to people is if you suspect something, listen to your gut and it's always something, it could be very subtle, but it's really a shift. It's, It's noticing something different about your loved ones. So let's say we're talking about your child. If they were really outgoing, and suddenly they're quiet or they were really quiet and suddenly they're really bubbly and vivacious. If they used to love playing soccer and they have no interest at all in in athletics now, or if they used to hang out with one group of friends and now they're hanging out with an entirely different social group, um, it's not always telltale physical signs. There are physical signs of substance use and you could look for them, but um, it's really more about just noticing something different, that something's shifted or changed whether it's behavioral, physical, they they used to take care of themselves more. Now they're not so much into their hygiene. Um, They're sleeping more, they're isolating more. There is a natural separation that kids go through, obviously, in high school. They differentiate themselves from their parents. They separate, they're not, you know, it's okay for them to be with their friends. But if you're starting to notice some changes that concern you, I would encourage you to say something. And not in an accusatory way, not you are acting strange that puts them on the defensive, but I'm concerned about you. I'm worried. Is there something you want to talk about? And getting educated, parents getting educated about substances, about what they can do, what the drug trends are that are out there. This is all stuff that we talk about in our parent programs, understanding what goes on and the pressures that our kids are under and the exposure they have to these substances Um, is really important. And not to accuse your kids, but just say, you know, I'm here. I'm here for you. If you're struggling with something, you know, or you know somebody who's struggling with something, please come to us. Please talk to us. In terms of Ilana and my other children, I think my biggest regret is not talking about it often. I think we had our one-time conversation when they were going into high school. You know, if you're ever in a situation, you lied to us. You said, you know, you're sleeping over someone's house and really you're at a party. And either you got drunk or you did something else you shouldn't have done, or you're going to get in a car with somebody who drank. I don't care if it's two in the morning, you call us, you text us, whatever, or if you're in a situation where you need to get out, you know, we have a code word, whatever it was, I said, you know, I want you home alive and safe. That's it. That Mm -hmm. was my rule. Like, just let me know where you are. No questions asked. I'll come pick you up. Ilana told me years and years later that I finished that whole sentence with, and we'll talk about it in the morning. And she heard that as, and I'll get in trouble. In the and morning. I'll
1: get in trouble in the morning.
0: So she never reached out because, you know, why would I want to, I mean, great. You're two in the morning. You're going to come get me, but come nine o'clock tomorrow, I'm going to have to face the music. So um, I learned my lesson from that in retrospect, you know, hindsight's twenty
1: twenty. What What should you have said instead?
0: I think if I had left off that part of the sentence, maybe that would have been fine. But I also think having ongoing organic discussions with Ilana about this and my other kids, not just the one and done, not just the, we want you safe, we we don't want you to engage in substances, you know, substances are dangerous for you. And if you do, we want to be there to help you. But I think ongoing organic discussions around this topic, constantly keeping those lines of communication open. I also think, and it's very hard. I have five kids. I've had many doors slammed in my face. I've had many eyes rolled at me. Teenagers are hard. But I think not taking no for an answer sometimes is important to to open that door and to sit on the bed and say, I'd like to have a conversation with you and to face the eye rolls and the recalcitrance that our kids have around opening up to us, creating more communication, talking more often. What's going on? How's your homework? What are your friends up to? You know, did you see a good movie? Did you read a good book? Like really having discussions. It's very easy. We, we, we lead very busy full lives and it's very easy to feel rejected by our kids and to say, fine, I'll just let them be on their own. I'll mind my business, you know, but I think as a parent looking back, I wish I had been more involved in Ilana's life. I wish I had talked more to her and not, you know, the pushback that she gave us. I wish I had not accepted so easily.
1: Mm-hmm. And can part of that conversation, I assume the answer is yes, but can it be in a non accusatory way? There's something about you which seems a little bit different, And to say bluntly, are you using substances? Is that something which you can say?
0: I think you shouldn't dance around the topic. I think you can ask, are you on anything? Are you taking anything? You know, and again, not again, not accusatory. I'm concerned. I'm worried. Substances can be very dangerous. You can get yourself into a situation that could have unfortunate consequences. Um, There are plenty of stories out there of kids who tried something once and didn't realize how much their judgment was impaired and unfortunately did not live to see the next day. We've experienced that. We've seen that. So it is really, you know, we're, we're so sometimes so afraid of offending our kids and saying the wrong thing. But I think if you're speaking from the heart and being open and honest, I don't think you can do wrong. You just want to make sure you understand your kids love you. You know, one of the things Ilana points to now um, in her recovery is that we stood by her the entire time and said, we love you. We will enable your healthy choices. We will support you in your healthy choices. And, you know, for a long time, she couldn't respond to the I love yous. She was not reciprocating them. And she was a very unhappy person and she was struggling and she, you know, has done wonders to repair her relationship with us and with her siblings. It took a lot. Again, this is like a bird's eye view of, you know, a much more painful, intense journey. But when she was able to really express herself, she said, you know, the fact that you loved me no matter what, you stood by by me no matter what, really was one of the things that enabled her to push forward in her recovery.
1: Even when she was unable to articulate that to you.
0: Even when she was unable to articulate it. So I would say, I love you and I'd hear silence on the other end of the phone, you know, it's not easy, you feel rejected as a parent, but, and that was not just one or two times, that was years. Um, Actually, when she she went through uh, the 12 steps program and she made amends to her siblings and to us. And one of the parts of making amends is asking what you want to say to her. And for many years, you know, we walked on eggshells, we couldn't say anything. I didn't want to make her situation worse. I didn't want to hurt her in any way. Um, the two things that came out in that moment, one was all those years that you never said I love you back that hurt me. Um, I said, in fact, there was a point in time where I started saying, I'm not going to say it anymore. Why should I expose myself to that kind of pain? And the second thing I told her was that she hurt my other children. And that was something that was very hard for me to deal with as a mother. Again, not to make her feel guilty, but just to have her understand the impact it had she has done such wonderful job, really reconnecting with her siblings and, and rebuilding or building those relationships. And I would say at this point, we are closer to Ilana than we ever have been anywhere in her childhood and growing up. I mean, the fact that you know she and my husband put this uh, half marathon in Philadelphia as a, a goal for themselves to do together—it's something that you know she was able to share with us. Um, my mother-in-law unfortunately passed away a couple months ago. And at her levaya, each family had representation. And of our five kids, she was the one that spoke at the levaya about her grandmother. And that mm-hmm. also showed a tremendous amount of reconnection with the family, rebuilding and repairing that very touching for us, very, very emotional and very touching for us to experience.
1: I'm sure, Leanne, what you're saying now for people listening who are struggling and have family members who are going through it and who may be craving That communication which they can't have or craving that I love you or whatever the equivalent is in their family. I'm sure you're giving them a lot of hope now to say that every case is different, but things can end on a much, much more positive note. So thank you. Thank you for saying that. I want to ask you about where kids, since we are talking about kids now, where are they getting their substances in general? Like if a kid is using marijuana or harder drugs, where are they picking them up? Is it other kids in school? Is it on the street?
0: So we've had kids come up and tell us that they get it from friends. Um, Where those friends get it could be from an older sibling. Could it, it could be from, you know, sometimes unfortunately these vape shops are selling THC products illegally. Um, We've had stories where kids have told us they have, you know, picked up products um, illegally. They're very, very accessible in certain places in Brooklyn. There are some, you know, smoke shops and, and bodega type places where you can easily pick them up. I've had many kids come up to me with situations where they feel pressure to use. So in one situation, I had a high school girl say to me, her friend, her very good friend is dating a dealer. And when I said, you know, dealer, like when you hear the word dealer, you're picturing somebody on the street corner, like Washington Heights, like you right. know, trying to sell you something. Um, I said, what do you mean by dealer? And he, she said, oh, he's a guy who goes to such and such yeshiva such and such school. So one of the schools in the area, I can't tell you where they get it from, but dealer should never be misunderstood as something that is outside of our community. We have plenty of people from within, and they could be people who are older, who are obtaining this and selling it or giving it to other people. Um, dealer is, is somebody from within, typically.
1: I want to talk about preventing issues. And you already mentioned the communication is key. Are there any other things that should be done perhaps on an individual level on a family level on a community level in order to act as a preventative to prevent the problem before it begins?
0: So there's something called risk factors and protective factors. Some of the protective factors are community involvement, you know, family engagement, all the stuff that we're talking about, you know, parents really interacting with their kids, being involved in their lives kids being involved in community-based activities, whether it's with their shul or with other youth groups. But the biggest thing is delaying the onset of first use. It is teaching kids that they are more likely to end up replacing their hierarchy. It's called a hierarchy of what is important, what's critical for survival. It's they literally categorize, their brains categorize substances as being important when they experience it, and if you're subject to these risk factors, and again, you could have no risk factors, unfortunately, and still end up becoming addicted to substances, but even if you don't think you're at risk, you, you, you know, the exposure itself can create this hierarchy of survival, where they start replacing things with the substance, and the brain learns the substance is so critical to survival, so critical to carrying on that it ends up becoming the most important thing. If that happens before a certain age, before the brain is fully formed and fully developed, it's very hard to undo. The flip side is true too, meaning you could be post being fully developed, you know, your brain is fully developed and the frontal cortex is formed. You can still develop addictions. Um, It's not that it doesn't happen post 25, but before the age of 25 and the younger and younger you get, and certain substances are riskier at different ages, but um, the risk of addiction is there because the brain is still forming those connections. And so it, it misreads substances as being critical and ends up being reliant on them in a way that is very hard to undo later on.
1: You mentioned Rabbi Rothwax before, how he was speaking at that event, and in general, how a thousand people came to TABC to hear Ilana's story, your story. Has there been, however, any backlash against you from any sectors or leadership within the Orthodox community, or has the reaction been entirely positive?
0: Um, I would say it's been 99% positive. You know, I think, uh, first of all, Rabbi Adler, who knew of our story and knew of our situation and, you know, was our family rabbi. He's head TABC. Right. Um, you know, he, he also was one of the reasons why we had this event. We were standing in Dunkin' Donuts in line. And he was in front of us and he knew about Ilana being in rehab at that point or sober living wherever she was in her journey at that point. And he asked how she was doing. Um, And I tend to be a little sarcastic. And I said, Rabbi, you would think we're the only family in Teaneck. Like we're the only family dealing with this. And he kind of smiled sadly and said, if you only knew. And his words, in addition to my son's words, kind of confirmed this suspicion that, you know, there are a lot of families dealing with this. A year later, after the event, we were speaking to Rabbi Adler, and he said, you have totally changed the dialogue on this topic. You have totally changed the conversation. And, you know, we have at least a 100 and something people on our email list for a support group. I can't say they all come. They don't all come, but many, many people have reached out over the last couple of years At first, within the Bergen County community, because that's where we're located, that's where our story really became known. As our story has started to spread and and become more wide known, you know, we are being contacted by people from everywhere, you name it, you name the Jewish community, and we've gotten a call, an email, a request for help. So I think the, the effect has been positive. I don't think there's been any criticism. I don't think that anyone has said, Oh, you know, this shouldn't be talked about. I think if anything, it's the opposite. You know, I got, I just got an email from somebody in our support group, which kind of tells the story, um, you know, which I said before that people feel like there's no one to talk to. And this really speaks, I think for many, many people who, who are in our support group. And it's really hard because, you know, one person said to me, from this area, she said, I really want to come, but I'm afraid I'm going to go to the grocery store the next day and see people I know. And I had to reassure her that, yes, you will know them and you will, they'll know your story, but you'll also know their story. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard for people to kind of, you know, like once you're opening up and you're talking, like you don't realize, okay, but we're all in this together. We're all dealing with this one way or the other. Um, This is, this is from somebody who, um, comes from a very yeshivish community without, I don't like to identify which one only because I don't want to, you know, ruin her confidentiality, but this is what she wrote. Joining the CCSA support group was my first public opportunity to unburden a very broken heart and a shattered soul of a spouse of an addict. I was insecure, frightened, and very intimidated. What I encountered and I received far exceeded my expectations. Leanne, her team, filled my heart with warmth, love, and encouragement. Every member of the group has added incredible insight and we support each other. The positive feelings gained have fueled my determination and given me the ability to endure and to survive and to even thrive despite the tremendous challenges I encounter. Restoring myself has been the greatest gift I can give my children, the gift of healing. I can never thank them enough.
1: Wow. It's got to make you feel good. You've done some real good.
0: Um, It makes me feel good. I, I, I'm a very solution oriented person. So I always said, Oh, if I only help one person, I'll be happy. Like, and then it became four people and then it became, you know, 20 people and now it became 2000 people. I love things like this. Um, we also have, you know, cards and emails from students who have said to us, I'm struggling. You connected with me, you reached me, or I deal with this in my family and now you've given me strength. We actually had one situation a couple weeks ago at a high school where, a kid literally wrote, I use drugs and I don't care about myself. And I know it's dangerous. And even if I wanted to get help, I, I'm not going to get help because I don't care about myself. Um, and it was a big red flag. And we were actually able to identify which kid it was. And um, one of my team members went to the guidance counselor and said, I got this card. I'm very you know, upset by it. If I know which kid gave it to me, do you think we could speak to him or her? And the guidance counselor said, of course. And they went and retrieved this kid. And now this kid is on the guidance counselor's radar. She's meeting with this this student regularly. She's talking to the family. So things like that, you know, definitely fuel my passion and help me feel like, okay, you know, one life, one life, one life. Um, It's such a big problem. It's such a big problem in our community. And so many people don't realize how big a problem it is And for every one of those hopeful stories, unfortunately, there are a lot of other stories that are not so hopeful. And, you know, sometimes I do feel like I'm swimming upstream in the ocean (laughs) and fighting tsunami like waves, but, you know, I'm going to keep swimming.
1: Then that leads to a final question. There's obviously been a lot of progress, at least in Bergen County, in terms of trying to overcome the stigma, awareness, and hopefully in helping people who already are involved in substance use. What about when it comes to prevention? Have you seen any data that indicates that you are on the right track, that things are moving forward, that perhaps there has been some movement in convincing people not to begin in the first place?
0: So, I mean, I just can measure it by, by our prevention education programming. So last year we were in 24 schools, which was a big jump from the year before. And this year we're in almost 45 schools. Um, we will, by the end of this academic year, have done over 100 programs and educated over 4,000 students. Um, as compared to last year, I think it was 2,500, over 1,500 parents and faculty. So just numbers alone and our growth in terms of our prevention education and being invited and asked into schools, also it's it's become something that we're being asked to do. Um, we're now being asked to come to Chicago. We're working with the community of Boca Raton, we're in a number of schools in New York, New Jersey, um, even in Philadelphia area. So we are really starting to see a demand, because I think schools are recognizing and, and families are recognizing in communities that this is an issue amongst our youth. And we have to get in early and we have to get in often. And we have to educate them, we have differentiated programs for each grade six through 12. So we, again, bring in Jewish people in recovery or who have first-hand experience with addiction that avoids the othering. This doesn't happen to us. This happens to other people. Somebody talks about their own personal experience, but it's not just telling a story. It's not just having a speaker and telling a story. It's really teaching evidence-based prevention materials and getting into these deeper discussions and and collecting these questions from kids and really engaging them in discussion. Um, We went to a school recently where, We met with 12th graders They had had gone away for winter break and a lot of them had admittedly drank. I think a couple of them got sick, maybe had to be hospitalized. And we were told by the guidance counselor, you're gonna get a lot of eye rolls. It was a big, big school and a big class. We broke them down into five different groups. We had five different presenters, each one working with a different group. And then we came back together afterwards and we said the kids were completely engaged and asking questions and dialoguing and talking And she was shocked. She said, you know, I thought they were going to be like, oh God, the school just brought you in because we had this, you know, winter break party and they're just coming to have someone lecture us on how, you know, not to do drugs. And it's really meeting kids where they're at and talking to them on their level and getting that kind of dialogue going. That's so important because, you know, yeah, there are kids who are never going to try drugs, never going to drink alcohol. There are kids who are going to do it no matter what you say there's a whole bunch of gray in between. What you really want to do again is give them the language to ask for help if they need it or if someone else needs it. And what we tell kids that are not interested in trying substances is great. Good. You know, wait till your brain's fully developed and even then we're not telling you go, you know, free for all, like go ahead go <laughs> go party. But statistically speaking, you're going to come across this in your life, whether it's with a family member, whether it's with a friend, whatever it's going to happen, you want to be aware I always talk about it. We teach our kids how to cross the street safely. We take them to the crosswalk, look at the light, look both ways. That's all we're doing. We're teaching our kids how to cross the street safely. They're going to encounter this if they haven't already. And we just want them to be able to make informed, healthy decisions.
1: Leanne, if somebody wants to be in touch with you, with CCSA, because either they need help, a family member needs help, or they want to help out with CCSA, how do they reach out to you?
0: So the easiest, I mean, I could give you my email, but but that would mean spelling out my whole name, but um, the easiest one is info, I-N-F-O at jewishccsa.org. Jewish and then CCSA, the acronym for our our organization. You can also go to our website, which is www.jewishccsa.org. There's a contact form there. There's all sorts of information about our community events, about our support group, about our prevention programming. Our story is there.
1: Well, Ian Foreman, this has been an honor to speak with you today, and I am really touched that you offered your story so forthrightly, and I'm sure it's very painful, but at the same time, hopefully, will be a source of healing for a lot of people. Thank you for joining me today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit JewishCoffeehouse.com for other episodes of the Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences